Welcome to The Writing Life, the podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Holly Ainley, Head of Programmes and Creative Engagement at the National Centre for Writing, here at Dragon Hall in Norwich, UNESCO City of Literature. We're really excited to be hosting a podcast episode this week with one of our NCW Academy mentors, Chip Cahoon. Mentoring at NCW takes place all year round and is tailored directly to your needs, focusing on your writing priorities. It can either be delivered in a single session or over a more sustained period of time. We have several different mentors who focus on everything from prose and poetry writing to developing your creative practice. Chip specialises in developing children's and young adult fiction, in particular, improving story structure, voice and character. Find out more about our mentoring offer over at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk forward slash academy forward slash mentoring. Alongside this mentoring, Chip is a storyteller and children's author. He's trained teachers through the Department for Education's English Hub. He's trained young creatives through Rathbone College, vicars through Ridley Hall in Cambridge, and children's writers with publisher Epic Tales. In this episode of The Writing Life, he's in conversation with NCW Programme Officer Ellie, and they talk about oral storytelling and writing for younger audiences. They discuss Chip's journey into both these areas and some of the distinctions between story writing and storytelling. They explore the importance of understanding your reader, the key components needed for every story, and how to target your writing to different age groups. So without further ado, I'm delighted to hand over to Ellie in conversation with Chip Cahoon. Hello, I am here today chatting to Chip and we are going to be talking about prose aimed at young people, how to write for a younger audience. Now, there's a lot of branches to this particular tree. So let's try and look at some of these maybe before we address the the rather big question of how one mm-hmm. writes for that audience so we start um, with the roots oh i love that let's let's start with the roots you can be a you can be a squirrel and i can be some sort of bird i don't know a pigeon or something <laughs> slightly more impressive <laughs> nice yeah i'd like to start before we even really get onto the page so mm-hmm. with the real real roots which is oral storytelling it's certainly been that for me yeah well i have had the honor of actually getting to see you perform a story to an audience uh, and the energy. <laughs> i mean i i enjoyed myself it was uh it was it was like having a, a double espresso i would say <laughs> um and it was great it was really entertaining it was very energetic and it was very different more than i realized very mm. different to reading a story aloud it's a very distinctive art and I'd love to know um, how you came to be an oral storyteller and if you can explain a little bit about what oral storytelling is. Uh, Well in answer to your first question there that's the most boring and shortest story of all really. (laughs) I was literally called up one day by a friend of mine um, who had been studying her PGCE become a teacher um, and she basically said I'm fed up with this whole teaching malarkey I'm thinking of becoming a storyteller would you like to help and I said yes and that was it that was how we became storytellers Um, but I 
I suppose we actually didn't know what storytelling was at that point. Um, and like a lot of people, we presumed it was either going to be reading aloud to children or what is essentially known today as theatre and education, where you um, create a little script for yourself and then you go in and you perform it. Uh, you dress up, you know, you may use puppets, that kind of thing. So that that's what we were going in with uh, uh, under the umbrella of. But as part of our research, we joined the Cambridge Storytellers Group because that's, that's where we were based at the time. And we noticed that a lot of storytellers didn't seem to have anything like a script. And it kind of made sense if you think about it, because if I were to ask you, Ellie, to tell us now the story of Little Red Riding Hood, you wouldn't need a script for that, would you? No, definitely not. You just know it, don't you? Yeah. Um, that's that's basically how storytelling works. You you know a story and then you share it with whoever's there in front of you in the moment. You kind of create it together. And the more we worked on this, the more we realised that this has way more scope than anything like theatre and education or um, anything scripted or, or anything read aloud um, for connecting with children, um, because it would actually be about connecting. And for me, I guess the pinnacle of, well, there are two pinnacles. Um, I'll, I'll take you through them in, in order of uh, importance. Um uh, as opposed to fun. So the important, slightly less fun pinnacle um, was when I delivered a performance at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and we had a review from Primary Times uh, Children's Choice Awards, which basically said it felt more like a conversation than a performance which is exactly what you're aiming for when you're storytelling. Um, the the more fun pinnacle was when I was sharing a story with a group of year six in a school um, not too far away from you folks there in Norwich. And uh, it was uh, the hardest group to share stories with because um, these are children aged 10 to 11 um, who, after their sats are out the way, they have no more reason to really be at school. Um, they're, they're now the oldest there in the school, so everyone looks up to them and that means you know stories are for the kids you know the, the little is not for them um but i was there taking them through this story world and we were building it together and at one point in the story which was essentially a variant of hansel and gretel i slid off my chair in order to pick up the stones that the hansel character was going to put in his pocket and i farted enormously loudly <laughs> And the reason why I think of this as a pinnacle is because that was the kind of audience who you'd expect to just dissolve into hysterics at that uh, at that happening. And yet not a single eyebrow raised, not a single lip quivered. They didn't notice that I had farted <gasps> because they were so engrossed in the story. They were so invested in the characters that, yeah, reality just completely passed them by. And so in that moment, I was like, yep, made it. This is what storytelling is really about. If I'd done that as an actor on a stage, you can guarantee the whole audience would have just fallen apart. But with storytelling, you you, you take them to a completely different place. My God, it's like the Oscars of oral storytelling, and you just you just won. <laughs> 
That's brilliant. Thank you. And I might be baiting you ever so slightly with this question. Hmm. Is oral storytelling for a particular age group? Yeah, yeah, I can, I can see how you're baiting me with mm. that one. Um, absolutely not. I mean, when we were going to those uh, Cambridge storytelling meetings for our research, there weren't any children in sight. It was all for mm. grown-ups. Um, and if you think about it, it makes sense because storytelling is the primary art form um, for all humanity. Um, it underpins everything else. You know, whenever someone paints a picture, they're trying to tell a story. Whenever someone yeah. writes a book, they're trying to tell a story. Um, even it crosses into things like um, design and engineering when we're trying to create a building that's going to attract a certain kind of person or, or a mm. bridge that's going to unite two different communities. There's always a story behind it. So, yeah, the, it's completely cross-generational um, as well as cross-cultural and cross-class and all. It, th there's no boundary that can't be shattered by storytelling. Oh, I love that. I think I completely agree as well. I mean, it's no secret that... As children, lots of us will have really loved being read to, will have loved performance and, and, a, and a bedtime story. And, you know, there's something about that creative mind that really enjoys a kind of an active delivery. And that is not something that goes away as a person gets older, life just changes. And maybe we have less of those, uh, less of those opportunities. I'm trying to convince my partner to read me bedtime stories, uh, before bed. I haven't won yet, but I, I have no intention of, of stopping. That's very her? true. Yeah. I could, I could start, mm. <laughs> I suppose, <laughs> but we will see. Um, so to bring it to a younger audience, as someone who's got a lot of experience with oral storytelling, how has that impacted or changed the way that you write for a younger audience? Very good question. Um, and to be honest, I started as an oral storyteller before I became a children's writer. Mm. When I was a child myself, I was writing stories for grown-ups, or at least I thought I was. Um, at the age of about 16, I had a 250,000-word novel that I'd just finished, um, which was based on Greek mythology, kind of bringing it up to date with the modern world. And I sent it off to a publisher, um, and I'm so sorry, I can't remember which publisher it was, but it was a, a one, one of the major ones. Um, and so I know now how lucky I was to get a letter back from the editor. Um, and her letter basically said that my writing sometimes looked like it was trying to appeal to children, sometimes looked like it was trying to appeal to adults, and I needed to pick. So at that point, I was like, right, I'm going to be an adult author. Um, and I changed all of the stories I was writing. I started writing about the math in London and uh, you know, <laughs> things like that. Um, so when I started oral storytelling in 2007, um, I still was working on adult fiction in terms of my writing. Mm. Um, and while I was working as a, an oral storyteller for children, I, I didn't really consider writing for that age group. The, the reason I got into the reason why, as a, an author, I ended up becoming a children's author first and foremost is because I think it was around about 2016, the History Press actually approached me um, because they have uh, the Folktale series, which collects folktales from different parts of the UK. Um, so there is already a Cambridgeshire Folktales, there's a Norfolk Folktales, there's mm. 
folktales from pretty much every county. And they were wanting to start up a new series for children. Now, the way the History Press uh, released this series is that they commission storytellers that they know to write them because storytellers are the most connected with the folklore of a particular area. Um, so they commissioned me to write Cambridgeshire folktales for children. And that was basically my breakthrough into children's writing. And I absolutely loved writing the book. There was one story I did some digging on in particular, which led me to write a proposal for the History Press with a second book, um, which is now in its second edition, um, because that one got to be so big. Um, but uh, if I recently picked up my first book, Cambridgeshire Folktales for Children, and mm. I turned to one of the stories in there, and I read the first um, couple of paragraphs, and I thought, if I had written this and actually submitted it to a publisher to start with, there's no way it would have got picked up because it, it just didn't appeal. I have written it like an oral storyteller. And as an oral storyteller, you're there with your audience. So you're developing a rapport. When you are writing, you don't have that opportunity. So you have to go straight to the hooks, the sort of neurological hooks, if you like, of um, what brings someone to absolutely love and invest in a story. Fortunately, being an oral storyteller in front of lots of audiences had also helped me to learn what that was. So the experience I had of developing this rapport with lots of audiences is what I now use to channel into my children's writing um, and has led to me now having these uh, commissions from the Department for Indi the Department for Education, which is just a little bit of a step up from the History Press, um, I think. Sorry, no disrespect to Nicola, my History Press editor. Um, no disrespect, but, Nicola. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> but it, it certainly is um, great to now be kind of heralded as someone who's writing excites children uh, about reading in general and gets them more interested in the idea of reading. Um, so that's that's what I'm working on now, projects that are all about getting children going from struggling readers into recreational readers. That's fascinating. And actually, I want to have a chat later about uh, struggling writers or, or uh, readers who are a bit slower uh, you know, below their typical age range. And um, I, I'd love to have a chat about that. But first, I want to delve more into uh, what you touched on just then um, about how you've used your oral storytelling to understand the reader and how that translates to helping writers. So for uh, those who don't know, uh, you're going to start very soon uh, mentoring for the National Centre for Writing, uh -huh. and that's going to be through one-to-one -one sessions with writers who are looking to create works for young audiences, mm -hmm. and you're going to help them to develop that work and those skills. And a major area that you believe is important for writers to focus on is this understanding their reader. Yes, yes, definitely. I think that's, I think that's very interesting. 
I think it sounds a lot simpler than the reality of it is. <laughs> yes, but it's also something which is built into the phrase. Um, so if you think of actors, um, mm. that is someone who acts, right? Uh, if you yeah. think of writers, that is someone who writes. But as a storyteller, you know, there's, there's this telling part of it, which is... Uh, built into the word storyteller is one word I, I keep having to remind people this it's not <laughs> separate words um and what that means is well if, if you're telling something what what do you need to tell something uh i need to make sure they're listening i suppose uh, i need to know the facts i need to know the why i'm telling it okay now the first thing that you said there you need to know that they are listening hmm. what do you need in order to know that they are listening Oh my goodness. I need you a hook. Play, don't you? Yeah. You, you actually need an audience. You need I people. Do. You need some <laughs> you cannot tell a story without an audience. So built into the very idea of storytelling is this fact that it's a two-way process. You have someone who is telling and someone who is being told. Otherwise we would be a story or or a storyer, you know, the the Yeah. We are a storyteller. There is definitely the, the importance of the audience is there in the word. So when you are, so, so what I picked up really soon when I was developing a rapport with my audiences and I was starting to tell them stories is that no matter what an audience thinks their favorite story or their genre preferences are, I could actually get them really engaged in anything. So, yes, part of that was my personality and the the sort of rapport building at the start of it. But another huge part had to be the story itself and what there would be in that story that could hook the audience. Mm. And I guess that's what led me to really start looking at the common denominators of every story, the things that really hook people and why. Um, there were two moments in my storytelling journey that really highlighted to this to me. And by complete coincidence, they happened at the same school. I was at a school in Soham where um, I was doing some sessions throughout the day. And for one of these sessions, uh, uh, as the class was brought in, I think these children would have been about nine or 10. There was a young lad who saw me and immediately spurted out, it's not football. I'm not interested. <laughs> so, of course, what then happens is the teacher grabs that child and says, right, you're going to sit down by my feet. Um, and that means straight away, all of these barriers are set up. He's not interested in the first place. Um, he's been reprimanded and um, embarrassed in front of all of his friends. He's not allowed to be close to his friends. You know, so many factors that should have prevented him engaging. And yet, by the end of the story, he was joining in just as much as everybody else. He had as big a smile as anybody else, and he was applauding as much as anybody else. Um, so story had, like I said earlier, managed to break down all of those barriers. And I did leave that session thinking, how on earth did I do that? <laughs> what, what actually happened there? There must have been something going on. And a little while later, I did a after-school pajama party for um, that same school. And this was for some of the younger children in the school. Uh, it was quite a local, uh, a, 
it was quite a local school to me at the time. So I got to go back um, after the weekend to collect my check because this is how long ago this story is from. And while I was in, I know, a check. (laughs) And while I was in the school reception waiting for the finance person, the lady in reception um, said, oh, you're the storyteller who delivered that pajama party uh, on Friday, weren't you? I was like, yeah, yeah, I am. Um, And she said, do you know what? My son has never, ever wanted to put on his reading glasses before. And yet after those two hours of hearing stories from you, straight away on Saturday morning, he was saying, where's my reading glasses? I want to read. He he just wanted to get more stories. And I thought, that's amazing that just a couple of hours of storytelling from me and bearing in mind what I said earlier, you know, this isn't reading aloud. There wasn't a book in sight when I was telling all of those stories. And yet this kid had been inspired to read. Again, I was walking away thinking, oh, thank you so much for that feedback. But how? (laughs) How on earth has this happened? You know, what has storytelling got within it that is um, able to engage? And, and, And so, yeah, it started me off on this journey to basically figure that out. What, what is the, the science behind it? Why does it work? Because I knew if I could figure that out, then I could start doing it more and make sure that um, it always happens and maybe help others to achieve that, to achieve those same effects. That's brilliant. So, I mean, I suppose the question is, have you figured it out? Would you say you've cracked the code, the science of storytelling? I I think so. Um, I mean, uh, the, the truth, I'm sure, will um, be in the future when people look back and and find out. Um, but like I said, um, the English Hub, which is the Department for Education's body looking at schools in special measures for literacy and trying to help them, um, they certainly think so because they got hold of some of the books that I was producing with illustrator Corky Paul over the pandemic. Um, they saw all of the feedback from parents that this had, that these books had managed to engage their children in ways that they'd never known possible before. Um, And they said, you know, how can we get our teachers doing the same thing with the books that they already have in at their disposal? Um, So yeah, that's, that's what I I hope um, my, that's what I hope I'm going to be able to bring to the National Centre for Writing Mentoring Team is all of the benefits of this research to share with aspiring writers coming to you folks. That's fantastic because... You're going to ask me what they are now, aren't you? (laughs) I mean, I think I'll say if anybody, you know wants to know they'll have to uh, they'll have to book a session i think i'm gonna be i'm gonna be oh, mean i'm gonna keep all you. the gold for myself uh like a dragon do, do um, you want a little taster though just so maybe, that maybe can... give us give us a cheeky a cheeky, a cheeky taster go on okay um well you tell me ellie if um if i oh. said to you that um the most important elements of any story begin with the letters b m e what would you say every story needs to have? Something starting with B, something starting with M, and something starting with E. Okay. I can guarantee you there are loads of primary school teachers listening to this right now who are just screaming at the <laughs> podcast player saying it's obviously. Is it? Oh, there's so many words that start with these letters. Any story. Okay. Is it? 
not background, not bold. Mm. See, it's, it's really my beautiful brain. asking this question to a writer because <laughs> you're, you're approaching it way more creatively than. Uh, yeah, my brain's—it's gone to my brain's gone to to plot and to character and to pace mm. and to all of these things, which I'm sure is me barking up the completely wrong tree to the one that we are, you know, climbing today. Well, actually, um, not. It, it, it's actually you barking up the right one. Um, <gasps> most people, I'm sure, would hear BME and say beginning, middle, and end. You see, <gasps> I see what you mean. And um, if we were on QI, that would be the answer that gets the nice big klaxon because that's the one that everybody in primary school has probably heard said again <laughs> and again and again. Um, well, I apologise to the primary school teachers at <laughs> QI. I would never want to want to offend anybody at QI. I'm a big uh, big fan. Beginning, middle, and end. Okay. Yes, which um, which is not the correct answer. Um, it's the obvious answer. So obvious that Ellie didn't get it because she's <laughs> way too creatively. Modern. Minded and was trying That's to think of something of original. Um, That's far too kind. <laughs> But I mean, if you if you think of it like uh, beginning, middle, and end, that that thing that we're told every single story needs to have, um, it, it obviously isn't true because mm. hardly any of Shakespeare's stories start at the beginning, do they? You know, he always mm. jumps us in right in the middle of the action. And if endings were important, um, Coronation Street would have just lost its <laughs> audience years ago. Um, th this idea of beginning, middle, and end is important if you're trying to construct a narrative where you. Do literally have event, 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 event. There has to be a first one, there has to be a last one, obviously. But when we're telling a story, there's way more to it than that, um, quite clearly. Because if you were to say, um, start telling the story of your day and it was just you waking up, switching off the alarm clock, grabbing your coffee, getting out the door, going to work, doing all of your boring work stuff, then going home again. No one's going to want to listen to that. They're going to want to hear about the struggles that you had during the day, the the car accident that you had, or the mm. moment where you um, got jogged at work and spilt coffee all over your computer and, and bits and pieces like that. So what I've... Um, what I've started to do is use this BME to give you the very simple three elements that every single story has as a common denominator uh, if it's going to be a story that your audience will find engaging. So do you okay. want to know what these are, Ellie? Listen up, people. I'm ready. Go for it. Well, the B is for something bad. We need bad things to happen, don't we? Yes, we see if you can think. Yeah, yes, we do. See if you can think of a story, uh, a story from folklore, a story that's been around forever, a story that um, everybody loves when nothing bad happens. You can't do it. No, not even a good the hungry one. caterpillar gets a tummy ache. Even the Teletubbies, one of their famous phrases is, uh oh. You know, it's always there, this bad thing, this bad element. So you've got to have that. Um, another really important part, which is kind of related to that, really, is the message. The The reason why we have the bad thing in stories is because of how important stories were in our survival. We, we developed stories as a survival technique, um, which is what I was talking about the city of literature wasn't it um when yeah, I was there. yeah. that was when i got to hear this oral storytelling for myself that was very much the topic exactly there so we were looking at how um 
humanity develops stories as a means of keeping itself alive for the last 40,000 or so years. Um, obviously, the bad thing is there because that's what we need to survive against. The message is how we are going to survive it. So you've got to have yeah. some kind of element of the story which helps you to cope with those bad things. The final one, the E, um, you mentioned it yourself, is the character. But E is actually empathy. We need a character that we can empathize with. If you have a character like Sherlock Holmes, for example, who has got this superhuman ability to just walk into a room and instantly know everything about everyone and very quickly solve all of the problems, well, people are going to switch off very quickly from a, a story like that because you can't, you just can't get into that sort of mind yourself. You will be going into um, that situation and thinking, okay, this this is just um way too unbelievable or you'll go into it and think well there's no way i could do that so what's the point of me reading this story you know i'm not going to be able to learn anything here this person is far too arrogant for me to fit in with their mindset that's why sir arthur conan doyle made the very clever decision to actually tell those stories from the point of view of yeah of course from his best Buddy, <laughs> Dr. Watson, Dr. Watson, who is constantly there going, Wow, did you see what Sherlock just wow, isn't that amazing? He's just oh, wow, like he was able to work that out from a wow. Yeah, and yeah. Dr. Watson is us seeing how Sherlock is so incredible and marveling at it. So we have that empathetic connection into the story. And whenever Sherlock explains something to help Watson understand, we are also helped along and we understand as well. Um, and you can sort of track this by the criticism and sales of Arthur Conan Doyle's work. And um, because the very final Sherlock collection, which was the only one to have two stories which are written from Sherlock's point of view, is the one that had the worst sales and the most um, adverse criticism. So, you know, you've got mm. proof right there. Um, likewise with a character like Superman, you know, it's, it's, it's true in all genres. Superman, big hero, can't be pretty much hurt by anything. But add a love interest in the mix who can be hurt, suddenly we can empathize with him wanting to protect his nearest and dearest. Add kryptonite into mix, something which weakens him, suddenly we can all empathize because we all have something which is able to knock us off our pedestal. So the empathy helps us to see that the bad thing in this story could be bad for us as well. And therefore the message in this story is one that's worth us taking notice of. Those three elements combined are like the holy trinity of stories. As long as you've got those, anyone could be interested in your story. And then it's just a question of, you know, making sure you've got the great writer's voice, um, that great and elusive writer's voice, which there are also elements of storytelling that have helped me to figure out and hone. Um, but maybe we'll save that for the folks who actually sign up to the mentoring scheme, shall we? I think so. I think you've been more than, more than generous. I've certainly been uh, scribbling that down, even though I have absolutely no intention of writing a, uh, a children's book anytime soon. I, I might have to change my mind. I have to it's not just time. children's stories, though. I mean, the, these are the no, core of elements of all stories. So, yeah, you could you could 
easily use this uh, in your adult fiction as well. No, definitely, definitely. Or I mean, else. I mean, Sherlock I've... Holmes is not yeah, for four-year-olds. Although any four-year-olds that are enjoying Sherlock Holmes, I, I praise you. Very impressive. <laughs> Don't stop reading. And I've also used these very same principles when talking to folks like Nestle and Best Western about their marketing strategies. You know, if you're wanting to hook an audience into pretty much anything and you appeal to those elements, those neurological hooks, you can do it. You can engage folks in anything. And um, let's talk about age. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about adults, we're dealing with a much broader age range, typically, when we refer to the audience. And as we get younger, we're talking about a smaller and smaller age of uh, range of ages, rather. Mm-hmm. So um, a lot of the time when we're talking about uh, shared reading experiences we're talking about for ages four plus then independent readers some people would define that as as seven plus Uh, lots of local libraries they have their own separate shelves with a specific age that those shelves are appropriate for so for writers who are trying to work out what age their story is appropriate for what is your guidance? Is there any industry standards that you're aware of? Where do they even begin to work out who that story is appropriate for? Because that sounds like that's something that you in the past have had to work out for yourself as well. Hmm. Well, I don't know whether it's a question of whether the story is appropriate, because I have in the past found myself pushed into the corner of telling a story that I wouldn't usually tell to a certain age range. Um, There is one story in particular that I tend to tell when I'm in a secondary school working with teenagers because they're even worse than the 10 and 11 year olds that I mentioned earlier. You know, they definitely think that they are way too old for storytelling. Um, So what I will usually do is I will tell them a story that you definitely wouldn't tell to a child aged under 10. Um, One of which is a Chinese folktale, which essentially involves violence against children. Um, A father ties up his children um, in their house, sets fire to the house, and then walks away and, you know, leaves them screaming until they die. Um, But another thing that I tend to do when I go into primary schools is I have a little bit of rapport with the group in front of me at the start to find out what kind of story they want to hear. I Mm. I never, or I very rarely go into a room knowing exactly what story I'm going to tell. I will always kind of gauge from my listeners what story is going to work best for them, Mm. Uh, which which is definitely an all storytelling thing rather than the writing thing, although there are ways that you can work with it, but that's something we'll come on to in a moment. The thing is, In one of those sessions, I had a group in front of me who were aged eight to nine. And from the questions I was asking them and the feedback I was getting back, the only story I had come into my head was that one that I would tell to teenagers with the child burning and everything. Mm. And because I literally couldn't get any other story in my head, that was the story I ended up having to tell. With the teacher sitting in the room as well, you know, all all proper safeguarding measures in place. Now, obviously, I adjusted my language. Uh, So it wasn't quite as graphic in places as I would be for teenagers. Mm. 
But the core elements of the story were exactly the same. Those children were still tied up. They were still left to burn to death. And the story, which um, you probably won't be surprised to know, doesn't actually end well, um, still had its unhappy ending. And I remember so vividly when I finished telling that story to this group of eight and nine-year-olds, there was a little bit of a pause, a little bit of silence um, as this um, finality set in. And then suddenly they just erupted with applause. Um, and <laughs> Children are so surprising. I know. And, and we ended up having a discussion about, you know, whether the story was true, um, what the morals were in the story and so on. And straight afterwards, it was actually my break. Uh, so I went into the school staff room and I was busy making myself a coffee. And I, I turned to see the teacher of that class approaching. I was like, okay, here it comes, you know, the, the condemnation. The, um, we have complaints about uh, nightmares and so on. Um, and literally all she said was, how on earth did you keep them still for a whole half hour? I've never seen them that attentive. So either she didn't mind the story that I told or she, it had actually gone completely over her head because she was just mesmerized by the amount of attention that the children were giving. I, I don't know. But the the fact is that this illustrates how it's not so much that the story needs to fit the audience. It's that the way you tell it needs to fit the audience. Mm. So again, we come back to the fact that telling is an important part of this. And I think this is where you do start to see the distinction between being an author and being a storyteller who writes because an author has their story that they want to tell. They have a way that they want to tell it. They put it out that way. And there may well be people who pick that up and who are instantly uh, engaged with it and appreciate it. And, you know, it's absolutely perfect for them. The storytelling author will think more about who do I want to hear this story or who do I want to read this story? Um, how am I going to make sure that it appeals to these particular people? Um, and whenever I've done mentoring for children's writers in the past, or any kind of writer, in fact, that's always where we start from. Children's writers usually want to write for children. They, they know that yeah. their story is going to be important for people of that age range in particular. Um, so we start thinking, okay, how can we make sure this story is going to appeal to that particular age range? And it really does come down to things like language and length. Um, I tend to think of it in terms of the concentration ability of your readership um, rather than necessarily their physical age, because I imagine that this is quite an erudite podcast. I imagine many of the folks um, listening to this podcast won't be surprised to hear me say that um, when I was in primary school, by the time I finished primary school, I'd already read all of the Ian Fleming, James Bond books, you know, the original 14. Um, so there's no way they would have been recommended by any teacher for the content that they had in them. Um, but I was absolutely capable of reading and understanding them, as I'm sure many of your listenership would have done. Um, because we, we have that love of story, which makes us want to focus and concentrate and get through the bigger books. You know, when I went into the library and asked for Jurassic Park and they gave me the, um, the edition of the movie, I was like, no, I want the original Michael Crichton one, thanks. And they were like, are you sure? It's a pretty big book. I was like, that's the point. That's what I want. So, you know, it, it comes down to, okay, um, who are we trying to appeal to here? 
when I'm writing a children's novel, I'm expecting that my readership are already going to have a certain love of story already. So um, I know I can be a little bit longer with it. I know I can use a little bit of a richer vocabulary and because they've already got that love of story. And so I want to focus on giving them an enjoyable adventure. With children who are maybe struggling readers or new readers who are trying to move into being recreational readers, I'm not going to shy away from having an exciting adventure, of course, but I'm going to maybe give them a short story because they're not yet at the level of concentration where they they know what to look for in a first chapter. They're they're going to be wanting to get into the meaty stuff as quick as possible. So that's what we do. We give them a short story so that they get the entire experience of beginning, middle, and end. They feel how satisfying an end feels. Then that makes them want to go on to the, the longer stuff so they can delay that gratification a little bit more. I could not agree with you more. Um, I am dyslexic and so I came to reading uh, quite late I think it's fair to say mm. because it was a lot more difficult um, and I felt a lot of shame I suppose is the word I felt a lot of shame as a child because I was very uh, it was very much known that I was set at a lower uh, reading level than my peers um, mm. and I got diagnosed thanks to a, a wonderful teacher. There are so many incredible teachers out there and it was a wonderful teacher who, who said to my parents, I really think you need to, to look into this because she, she won't pick up a book. She's not engaging and mm. she's smart and she likes stories. She's got a love of stories. And I did, I used to scribble down all of these, all of these kind of ideas and I used to speak stories mm. to people. I loved it. I had a very vivid imagination. Uh, but as soon as it was a book was put in front of me, I, I shut down. I used to completely, completely shut down. Totally and so I love, idea. love what you're saying so much about this um, just pure enjoyment of storytelling, separate from books, with books just being one version of how we can express those stories and how those stories can be can be shared. And I would say yes. that based on my experience, I suppose, and the experience of others, uh, books for young people have such a huge role to play in if someone mm. is going to be a reader or a creative of some type later in life, if they develop the habit, if they feel welcome in that in that world. Um, and there is a lot of work being done, some of which you've already alluded to actually, um, in schools and in communities to reach out to these readers and to create these stories for for people that are you know dyslexic friendly texts or yes. easy yeah. reads big prints all this kind of things dedicated sections in bookshops and it's really uh, it's very lovely actually i've got to say as someone who now is working in literature and is quite comfortable reading and is much more happy uh, mm. in themselves i'm so grateful to what's being done for these next generations to give them that that space and to you for for your part in that it's, it's really special it's very important but i was going to ask you actually i mean you, you have answered my question there um i was going to ask whether you read now um and uh, I, i'm guessing that you you write now as well um am i right it's it's an interesting one i write more than i read 
It's gotcha. what's happened. There was a period I did an English degree at uni, mm. but I think that whilst I loved it, uh, partly it's because I was stubborn <laughs> and determined <laughs> to prove that having dyslexia would not stop me uh, doing a degree that they told me not to do. Um, so maybe there was <laughs> a little but bit that, of that. That's actually the, that's actually the point I wanted to make. You know, is that it was your love of story that powered you into reading even though it was a challenge for you um, and that's yes. exactly the same with children today um, we've in the last uh, seven years I think it's been um, we've had reading for pleasure on the curriculum in schools um, and it started because pretty much 10 years ago to the day, um, we had that big report from the Institute of Education saying that reading for pleasure is like the biggest common denominator for kids who succeed, um, way more important than social economic background and all of that stuff. So, um, you know, the government were like, okay, quick, let's put reading for pleasure on the curriculum. Um, literacy now has three strands. You learn your phonics, you learn your... Uh, uh, comprehension and you have to read for pleasure um, and so the recommendation that all schools were getting was make sure children have 15 minutes a day to read for pleasure the thing is if you are a child like you probably were Ellie <laughs> when you you know you hear you've got 15 minutes now to read for pleasure what you're going to actually be hearing is you've got 15 minutes to read and ah. it's not yeah exactly it's not exactly something that is going to fill you with abundant joy and so in the last seven years what we've seen is that reading standards have actually gone up but they've crept up by something like four percent so um, nowadays there are 75 percent of kids who are leaving primary school um, capable to read that still means the whole quarter of the country can't though and the literacy trust the nlt they've done so surveys which show that enjoyment of reading has actually gone down by 11% in the same time. So we've been getting this teeny tiny little increase in um, reading skill and uh, an absolute dearth in reading enjoyment. Mm. And I think it's it's partly because um, the, the fun has been taken out of it. The more you bring the fun of the story, the more you make it a communal experience between teacher and learner or um, parent and child, which is, again, putting the telling back into storytelling, the more you are going to get the enthusiasm that powers the learning, the desire to make it, even if the world is against you or, or your, in some cases your body is against you, um, as I guess it was for you. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that that is true. And school has an interesting role to, to play in that. And we won't we won't delve into it now because that's enough mm. for, let, let alone a podcast, a series of its <laughs> own. There's enough content there. <laughs> but it, it is it is certainly an interesting one in terms of, um, you know, we have a good foundation in this country, in the children's publishing industry in this country, where... Mm. Um, more so than in other certain other countries in the world, there is slightly less of a need for a children's book to have an educational purpose in order to be seen as having worth. Um, mm. By that, I mean a sort of an academic educational yeah. purpose. They can be for the purpose of inspiring or uh, looking at morals or even mm -hmm. if we're talking about uh, YA, a lot of it is escapism, which for teenagers is hugely appealing Absolutely. for reasons that are obvious. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so there is a lot there in in the way that you tell it and why that is so so important for for addressing a young audience. Yeah, very much. And in fact, um, for teenagers, um, uh, story poetry has started to take off hugely, which is something that uh, on the face of it looks kind of odd because you think, you know, they're teens, they're, they're not going to be into poetry, let alone story <laughs> poetry, you know, these epic poems. But actually, what is a teenager but someone who is looking for their own way to navigate the world and they're, they're wanting to experiment with different and new things. So, you know, that's why when something new and different comes along, teenagers are usually the first ones to actually grasp it. Um, and yeah, story poetry is therefore the way to communicate with them, believe it or not. Yeah, it's wonderful. There's a huge amount in terms of understanding the reader, so, so much. And I think what we what we need to be doing as as writers is thinking, okay, um, we're certainly not going to sacrifice the story. You know, we don't want to be necessarily making all of these um, moral based tales um, or, or you know really epic long spanning adventures like the the Harry Potters that are out there. What what the world needs more of, I think, are short story collections for children um, or even just novellas or something like that. Because um, today when so much is being thrown at children, both by their schools and by just the general world, you know, they're having stuff on their iPads, they're having stuff on TV, um, so much that they can stream and, and so on. Um, if they If they are going to get this reading for pleasure bug which is so important for brain development and just future success the thing that's going to help them to get that is a, a shorter story we need more short story magazines for children short story anthologies or just short story books they don't have mm. to have pictures they don't necessarily have to have a strong moral but they do need to have an exceptionally good story yeah i would agree with that i would agree with that as as a person who was a, a young person who struggled to read short stories the satisfaction of an ending uh the the overwhelming feeling of of success that comes mm-hmm. from just finishing something is is hugely appealing and uh makes you want to to read more absolutely, absolutely. yeah absolutely. well i think we unfortunately need to to wrap up now obviously we'll uh, we'll be the back with our series <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back with our very, very intense series of looking at uh, education and schooling and how we're going to fix it because obviously we've got all the answers. <laughs> the writing life spin-off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that they did not ask for, but that we will do. Yeah. But thank you so much, Chip. That's been it's been really fascinating and, and a real insight into the world of why storytelling is important and how writers can learn a lot, perhaps, from looking up from the page every once in a while. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. A big thanks to Ellie and Chip Cahoon for that great conversation. And thanks to you for listening. If you have any questions or you want to get in touch, you can find us at Writers Centre on Twitter and Instagram. We're on Facebook and you can sign up to the NCW newsletter at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. As a UK-registered charity, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. You can make a donation on the website by going to the Support Us page. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please do consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a rating or a review.
because this helps other writers to find us. Thanks again. Keep writing, and I'll catch you with the next episode.